think too often we let ourselves get into a trap of, oh, they won't listen. Oh, it's not worth it. Oh, nothing will happen. That's not true unless you get the evidence back the other way. Hello, Titans, and welcome to Fram and Friends, a Cal State Fullerton podcast in partnership with Titan Radio. Today, we have a very special episode featuring an academic leader who has served at every level, from professor to U.S. Undersecretary of Education. Here to introduce him and kick things off is our host and president, Fram Vergy. Well, hey, Titans, it's uh, great to be with you. Uh, I wish I could see you personally. I, I think we start off every one of these podcasts for a while this way, but it won't be long until uh, we're back on campus and uh, talking to each other face to face, which I just can't wait for. It is uh, a great privilege and a lot of fun uh, to be here with uh, um, someone who I think you're going to really enjoy hearing from, uh, someone who I always enjoy talking to, and that is Ted Mitchell. Uh, Ted is a uh, uh, I, I, I like to think of him as a good friend and also uh, uh, a giant, he won't say it, I will, a giant in higher education. Um, yeah, but So we'll, we're going to get to know a little bit about that today. Ted, it's good to have you. Bram, it's great to be here. And, and I just, I aspire to be a titan in higher education. Just want to, want to be clear about yeah. that. Anything yeah. else is uh, short, short of the goal. You had, you had to get it to it before I did. That's great. I love it. <laughs> so, Ted, you know, it's always best uh, uh, to start at the beginning. Um, I have the benefit of knowing you a little bit and calling you a friend, but our Titan family, our faculty, our staff, our students, our alumni, they may not know your story as well as I do. Can you give it, our audience an introduction to Ted Mitchell? Who the heck are you and, and what are you doing here? Uh, you know, I, I, I ask that question every every morning when I look in the mirror and I think, who is that guy? And, and Fram, it really is a delight to be with you and, and absolutely right. To, it's great to share a, share this opportunity with a, with a real friend. And, and so, so thanks. Uh, we'll, I'm sure, go off the rails several times. And I, I hope that the Titan hope community so. <laughs> will, will, will appreciate that. Um, so uh, um, I'm a Californian. I was born in, uh, in Northern California. In San Rafael, my my uh, dad was a high school uh, guidance counselor uh, at Tamil Pius High School. My mom was a stay-at-home mom, uh, three boys, uh, uh, which is you know a, a ton ton of work. And so her work in the home was uh, probably more more about counseling than my dad's at, at school. Uh, uh, public high school uh, played a couple sports in in high school. None of them well enough to to play in college. Uh, went off to uh, lucky enough to get get to, um, uh, into Stanford. Uh, so gradually worked my way down the state of California. Uh, so started started uh, in Marin, uh, moved to moved to the South Bay uh, from from Stanford. Uh, I, uh, I I have no imagination, Fram, as you well know, uh, and so I stayed at Stanford for my graduate programs as well. Uh, so I've got uh, three very expensive degrees under my belt and uh, then headed, headed off to my first teaching job at Dartmouth College uh, and uh, spent 10 years uh, in, in the lovely woods of, of New Hampshire, um, getting used to the cold, getting used to the snow uh, and really learning how to teach. And so fast forward in all the roles that I've had, I, I really do still think of teaching as my calling. Uh, and uh, teaching, teaching it really as my as my favorite job. Um, my um, my my work as a as an academic, uh, my work as an administrator, like yours, has really been focused on uh, access, uh, the creation of opportunities for traditionally underserved populations to succeed in school and in life. I think I learned that uh, from my dad um, as a guidance counselor in what at the time was. Marin's only predominantly African-American black high school, uh, he would come home, um, these, were the, these were the mid 60s, uh, he would come home and really agonize over the fact that really excellent black students weren't, going, weren't getting into the colleges that they deserved to be in because of just blatant discrimination. Uh, and the, 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 the inequity of that uh, really drove a lot of our conversations around the dinner table and uh, really inspired me. As, as an educator. Uh, after Dartmouth, I came back to Stanford for a couple of years. Uh, I was lucky enough to serve on the Stanford Board of Trustees uh, and, and did that work for a while. Uh, um, then was recruited to be the Dean of the School of Education at UCLA, 
continuing my down my my southward march, uh, and uh, spent some might say an upgrade, some might not. I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think it's an, I think it's an, it's an upgrade. Certainly, if you look at uh, I don't know, you, we'll see. Uh, we'll see it. I sure, sure liked watching uh, watching the Bruins. Um, I think came so close this last weekend, didn't they? Absolutely. Yeah. And the and the Stanford women did go all the way. So it was yes, a happy did. happy Sunday. Uh, anyway, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna um, move on. Uh, at this point, Fram, uh, as you know, um, I, I can't keep a job, and so it all started to roll pretty quickly. So a number of years at UCLA ended up my time there as vice chancellor for uh, everything nobody else wanted to do. Um, uh, budget uh, development, external affairs, uh, left UCLA and, and went uh, just up, up the mountain a little bit and worked at the Getty Museum for a year and called back to campus to serve as president of Occidental. So I was president of Occidental for, uh, for a number of years. And then um, thinking about this theme of, of equity, uh, you know, I, I, as an Occidental president, I would end up in the, in the same counseling offices as the President of Pomona and the you know, President of Claremont and uh, St. Mary's, and we would all be after the same two or three um, African American uh, Hispanic students. Um, and I, I thought, you know, maybe I'm playing on the wrong side of the ball. Uh, so I decided to throw myself into K-12 school reform, which I had learned some about when I was at UCLA working with the LA Unified School District. So um, I left Occidental, went to work for an outfit called the New Schools Venture Fund. Uh, which was an outgrowth of a couple of Silicon Valley venture capital companies. Uh, we were a nonprofit organization, still exists. And our mission was to invest in emerging uh, uh, technologies and organizations that were serving underrepresented students. So I went there to do that for a couple of years um, to sort of learn what was going on in the K-12 environment and was so taken by it. Uh, I ended up spending 10 years there. Um, and we, um, we, we uh, supported charter schools in inner city uh, California. Uh, Aspire Public Schools was one of our, our, our big investments. We invested in, in KIPP academies. Um, and then we moved into ed tech. And so uh, some, some, of the, uh, some of the folks on, on campus may be familiar with Khan Academy uh, and Khan Academy's teachings. And we were proud to be the sort of the, the, the first startup money for, for Sal uh, when he moved out of his closet uh, doing videos into, into more suitable, uh, suitable surroundings. Um, I got to know a man named Arnie Duncan when I was doing that work. Arnie had asked us to help him uh, redo the schools of Chicago. And so we were hard at work in school reform in Chicago when Arnie got the call to uh, serve as President Obama's Secretary of Education. And long story short, uh, uh, during the second, at the beginning of the second term, Arnie called me up uh, and said, "I'm not asking you this time. I'm telling you, <laughs> you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna show up in Washington, uh, and uh, I need you to be undersecretary and help me think about higher ed." So enormous privilege. Uh, it's where you and I got to got to first know each other uh, when I was um, learning my way around the federal federal government. And uh, um, was at, was uh, in the federal government until um, we were we were marched marched out by security on inauguration day in twenty in twenty seventeen. Um, the, the the rest the rest is a blur. Um, uh, I uh, 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 I continued to to want to be in the fight, and the American Council on Education was silly enough to offer me. Uh, post first as a consultant and then uh, to uh, be the president of the American Council on Education, which I've been doing for the last uh, the last three years. And just to wind it up, the American Council on Education is not an organization uh, well known. Our, we, we, we don't have many billboards. Our social media presence is limited to my six Twitter followers, uh, but we, we represent uh, all of American higher education in Congress. So we represent two years, four years, publics and privates and have been deeply uh, in the conversations about uh, COVID, about uh, uh, campus shutdowns, about recovery, about money uh, to support uh, campuses uh, to in, in their recovery efforts. And you know, that's a place, uh, Fram, and I, you won't take credit for this, but that's a place where you uh, personally and your voice uh, and, and the campus's voice have been really important to me and to our team as we go and argue in Congress for why it's so important to provide money to our institutions. So thanks. Right. 
you, uh, our listeners can tell uh, this is a, uh, a deep and broad uh, set of experiences that uh, you know I, I think uh, would be hard to replicate for anyone, Ted. It's just uh, that the, the breadth of what you've done and your involvement have been um, gigantic. Uh, and uh, you won't say it, but your name is the first on lips of so many people in higher education. And ACE is an amazing institution that may not be ubiquitous for folks uh, outside of higher ed, but within higher ed, everybody knows uh, what uh, uh, a galvanizing and important institution it is. And that has a lot to do with you. Yeah, but, man. you know, un university professor, dean, president, CEO of a uh, you know, uh, education venture fund. I mean, my gosh, you can't even make that up. Uh, and then undersecretary of education, now president of ACE. It's clear you have a, a, a deep, deep commitment to education. It's also clear you're nuts, but that's beside the point. I, I, I am nuts and I can't keep a job and, uh, and I'm committed to, 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 you know, just trying to find, find a niche where I can, I can do my thing. So um, I, got a, I got a little sense from 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 your first answer, where that comes from, but where where does this passion, where does this belief, this um, um, maniacal commitment uh, to higher education and its transformative value, where does it come from? What feeds it? Um, I, I bet I bet that you and I can can share these stories. Part of it is um, my own transformation. Um, I you know I, I went to I went to college uh, really on autopilot. Um, I you know, knew, knew I wanted to do some good in the world, uh, had this social justice thing echoing in the back, back of my head, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I, I, I went to college thinking I wanted to be a math teacher. I wanted to go back to being a high school math teacher because I was so impacted by my high school uh, math teachers. And um, I was uh, transformed by my, really my freshman experience in college. Uh, by a set of experiences that I had, a set of professors that I uh, came in contact with who, who changed my life, who uh, sort of took that nascent social purpose and said, all right, buddy, you know, you really want to do something in the world? Um, go, go do it. Uh, and uh, that, that set, me on the, set me on the path. And uh, if there is a maniacal twist to it, which I think there is, um, it really comes from a couple of professors that I had in, uh, in college who um, just wouldn't let me stop. So what you're saying is it took education to set you on the path to education. Precisely. Yeah, I love it. I love it. You know, uh, uh, I, you, you are a much faster learner than I am. Uh, you know, for me, uh, I grew up in a family that uh, I was first in my family to go to college. My, my, I'm an immigrant to this country. Uh, yeah. um, and it was the ticket uh, and that's all I understood it to be at higher education was a ticket. It was a ticket I needed to get. Uh, I needed to buy. I needed to get punched. I needed to take the ride. And I did that in college and I did that in law school. And it was dancing around education while I was a lawyer. You know, uh, I, 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 I worked for Fortune 50 companies and uh, I worked all over the, the country, but always um, had an education practice. Uh, mostly K-12. And, you know, you talk about LAUSD and the KIPP academies and charter schools. I was on the other side of you at LAUSD doing all those things. We were dancing, speaking of dancing around, we were dancing around each other, which is really fun to look back and think about. Um, but transformative is the, is, the, is the word. When it hits you, when, when you, when, when you learn not just the value of it to yourself, but the value of it to society and the and the and the uh, the ability to make change for the better, um, you you then you step off and into that rabbit hole and you'll never come out. I I, I really believe that's the case. And it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And and you know the, the work that you did in in LA was, I, I mean, really a part of. I don't know if you, you even felt it at the time, but a part of expressing that because you were. You know, you were really always driving uh, the, the, especially the, the teachers, the teachers union uh, to be working on behalf of kids. And, you know, that was that even then it was very clear that that was at the base of your of your motivation. And uh, we're, we're really glad that you, you made the made the switch and it's now your day job. 
Yeah, I'm a slow learner, but I did finally get there, I guess. <laughs> but looking at all those roles that you played in higher education, um, professor, dean, president, undersecretary, um, uh, you know, what did you call it? Uh, uh, dean of any, uh, everything and, and nobody else wanted to do. I love that. Um, and now at ACE. Um, so which one did you like the best and why? Which one did you find the most fulfilling? Yeah, that's, um, it's hard. You know, they were all fulfilling in, in their own way and they were all frustrating in their own way. Uh, I think uh, that I, I sort of let it slip at the, at the very beginning. Um, I remember <laughs> maybe my second or third year being a professor, I remember walking back into the department and my department chair who I adored uh, was walking up the, the other, other end of the hallway and I just had a really, really good class. And I said, you know what? I would pay to do this job. Yep. yep. And uh, I, I don't think I've ever said quite that. I never said that to, <laughs> never said that to Arnie Duncan. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think that, and, and it, I, I, I get, um, you know, I get notes every once in a while from former students who say things like, uh, you know, I was doing this and I just thought of you and I thought of this one thing. Um, I, I'm, I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher friend. Yeah. I, uh, I think I was about 15 years in at my law practice when I, I got the opportunity to begin teaching at Claremont Graduate School, teaching MBA students at their graduate program, the Peter Drucker uh, yeah. Center. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you work at a large law firm, uh, you know, uh, I, I was already working seven days a week, uh, 18 hours a day. And I came home and I told Julie that I'm going to teach labor and employment law at the Drucker Center. And I think first, when she got up off the floor, she was ready to kill me. Like, what are you talking about? And what I used to have to do was get up at three in the morning, literally, to go do my work at the office and then leave and fight traffic from downtown LA to make it to teach uh, uh, one night a week, three hours uh, for the semester. And, and then I wouldn't get home until literally till one o'clock in the morning because by the time I was done with the whole thing. But I couldn't stop. I did it for yeah. 10 years. I couldn't stop. And I, every year I would say, okay, this is the last year I'm going to do this. And then I, I, I could, because I just love that classroom so much. I love the teaching. And I, I, I remember the first day I walked into class and, uh, uh, you know, these are all MBA, uh, executive MBAs. They're all uh, in positions in, in, in large corporations and they're looking to get their yeah. MBA. And uh, so they were serious, man. They wanted, they, they wanted every minute to count. Sorry, what's this guy going to teach me now? Yeah, exactly, exactly. And and they were sharp and they held me accountable and I loved it. But we always had fun. You know, we always started every class with lawyer jokes. Uh, you know, <laughs> they got to tell them to me and then I would tell them to them. We would take five minutes and that would be fun. So That's I have great. great memories of that. I know exactly what you mean. Okay, so most fulfilling being professor. How about... Uh, uh, most impactful i mean that's hard you have so many impactful pieces there can you can you can you choose one and say i can look back and on my legacy i can see yeah it's uh, it's um it's a great it's a great question uh um and just a, a note a note on the teaching thing i don't i don't know about you but i still uh get butterflies when i teach a class oh yeah um, you know, I could, give a, I could give a speech to 10,000 people really kind of without batting an eye and my blood pressure doesn't go up. Put me in front of a, a group of, of engaged, um, you know, students for- Who've already done their homework. Yes. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I'm, I, you know, I'm getting aerobic exercise at that point. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's a good thing. Anyway, so in most impactful, you know, I, I, I think, and I don't want to, I have fought against admitting this, but it, it was the federal role. Yeah. It was I'm the federal sure. role, and and it just it had to do with two different things. One was um, sort of shaping uh, a narrative, uh, because for better or worse, uh, when you have those positions, people tend to turn the volume up a little bit and and listen a little bit harder. 
and one of the things that I think um, we were able to remind people of, and, and it's really stuff I've learned from, from you, uh, is that too much of federal policy and too much of the way we think about college and university funding uh, approaches is based on this antiquated no notion of an 18 to 22 year old who comes on day one, leaves on year four, gets a diploma, and that sets them up for life. And you know, as, as, as you know, as you live, and as you and I walked around your campus a while ago when we could do those things, um, you know, today's students, the new normal students, uh, don't just look like that. Right. And, and we need to have systems, including the way we finance higher ed, that are responsive to that. We need to meet students where they are. And I think we were able to, we were able to change the dialogue uh, um, inside the federal government about that. Um, and I feel good about that. And then the other is just the, just the numbers. You know, the day that we were able to sign off on 260,000 disabled veterans um, student loans and get those wiped off the books. It's like, wow, <laughs> that's, a, that's sort of a mid-sized city. Um, and to be able to do that, a uh, lot of work, but ultimately with the stroke of a pen. My last day in the office, uh, uh, I sent an email to 16,000 uh, student loan borrowers who'd been defrauded by a for-profit college and I abolished their student loans. Um, and, you know, it, it was a good way to go out of town. Yeah. I love that you can, you can tie that back to your childhood too and your father agonizing over inequity in education. Yep. Going from a high school guidance counselor to the position that you were in. I mean, it's what a wonderful story. Can, can, I, can I put a, an exclamation point on that and can I tell a Barack Obama story? Yeah. So in the middle of these um, for-profit college shutdowns, and we, sh we shut down a bunch of them uh, and, and some pretty big ones, uh, a woman, um, a black, black woman who was in a nursing program in one of these institutions wrote to the president and said, I don't know what to do. I'm three quarters of the way through my nursing program at Institution X. And uh, I've now tried to transfer my credits to other institutions and they won't take them because these guys were selling me a bill of goods. Um, can't you please help? So um, President of the United States takes that letter, writes a note on it, sends it to me and says, we need to fix this. Do something. Do something. And so you have this, you have this letter that was almost exactly parallel to the manila file folders that my dad used to bring home. Uh, uh, and, you know, so we went, we went to work and, and uh, the uh, deputy undersecretary, a fantastic woman named Kim Hunter-Reed, who now runs uh, higher education in the state of Louisiana, Kim took this as her project. And so Kim was able to walk this woman's transcript to uh, another institution um, in, in Texas, uh, accepted her credits. Uh, she is a nurse uh, and Kim uh, was at her graduation as she walked across the stage and, and got her diploma. But um, this, this was an administration that from top to bottom lived that sort of stuff, Matt. Well, you know, Ted, the, the interesting thing is that while you were there, I was the GC at uh, Cal State. And what I, one of the great privileges of my life was to be able to spend time on each of those 23 campuses and understand what was going on, meet with faculty, meet with staff, but most importantly, meet with students and see um, the issues that they were facing. And the great confidence that I had during that time was the issues that they were raising with me, whether they were financial aid, student debt, insufficient Pell, um, uh, uh, or they were access issues to classes, to graduation rates, whether they were diversity, equity, inclusion issues, whether they were Title IX issues, which were huge, hugely important at that time and place, whether they were First Amendment free speech issues, which were hugely important at that time and space. I would then come back to my office and I would look at what was coming at me because it felt that way, to be honest with you. Yeah. The Department of Ed was coming at me 
you were coming at me and it mirrored exactly what my students were saying to me. And so more than once I was frustrated with the Department of Education, <laughs> as you can imagine. I, I, I remember, I don't even need to imagine. How, how do you expect me to do this? But, the, but the, 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 the amazing hook that you had was I couldn't argue with you because you were telling me what my students were telling me. And that symmetry, that uh, uh, symbiotic uh, piece made it motivating, intentional, engaging. And over that time, I saw change on yep. those campuses. I, did, I saw change in policy, of course. I saw change in, the, in, in what we put before the Board of Trustees. I saw change in how we educated our, our presidents and our administration. But I saw change on our campuses because of what you were doing in Washington. Well, that's nice, nice of you to say. Uh, I know that we caused a lot of, a lot of anguish, but I want to insert just an important part of, in there is that um, we didn't do anything other than sort of you know, ring some bells and rattle some cages. It was you and, and literally you in, in your seat as GC at Cal State. For example, to take a really contentious issue, Title IX, um, you know, that, that one, <laughs> that was incoming uh, from, from us in, in, with, with major artillery. Uh, and, you know, you were able to translate that which I think you're right. I mean, it was a demand that we were hearing from students. We were getting tons of complaints and not just not, I mean, Cal State was a minor part of it. There were institutions that were rife with accusations of, of sexual misconduct among their students um, and faculty. So what you were able to do is you were able to hear the incoming and translate it into something that was not just uh, offensive to the process, like, you know, hey, we know what we're doing, but actually said, hey, this is an issue. It's coming, it's bubbling up. And we need to translate the student issues and the administration's desires into something operational, something we can live with. And so you were able to transform those conversations into positive conversations that, that, led, that led to change. And you know, without, uh, without strong leadership at the campus level, the kind of leadership that you're providing um, all the policies in the world can't create a, a just and equitable, excellent education system. So thanks for thanks for thanks for doing that. Well, I feel like we were uh, we were partners. I mean, I've, I've experienced uh, a time with a Department of Education that is intentional and um, uh, uh, unrelenting, and that's what you were but for, for something that was aligned with where we right. were. And I've, and I've experienced the opposite. I've experienced, to be very honest, and you know, I'm transparent with what I, what, I, what, I, uh, what I think about the last administration. And the Department of Education was also intentional and relentless there, <laughs> but there was no alignment. I was right. not hearing my students tell me the same things. I was not hearing my parents and my families tell me the same things. So. It's amazing what you can do when there is alignment. And I, th I think you should be very proud. I know you are, but you should be very proud of your legacy of what was accomplished during that time. Thanks, it was a, it was a, it was a good time. And I think the greatest compliment that, that we could receive, and I'm hearing it from you, is that, is that we were listening <clears throat> and we were listening to the right voices. Absolutely. So as a leader in, in higher education policy with all that background and all that wind up to where you stand right now as the president of ACE, um, uh, what do you see as the biggest challenges that are facing um, higher education institutions, specifically our communities today? You know, I could, is it student debt? Is it access to graduation? Is it funding? Is it diversity, equity, inclusion? What is it? Uh, I'm inclined to say yes. <laughs> um, you know, I, th I think the biggest, the biggest challenge, um, the biggest challenge is making sure that we are listening once again to the voices of our students and understanding them and what they need 
and responding and creating systems and structures that um, I think I said it earlier that meet them where they need where they, meet them where they are rather than where we are. Um, and I think that you know you've you've done a great job. Uh, others in the in the Cal State have done a great job. Uh, of uh, increasing attainment in graduation rates. And that's not just by doing things harder. Um, it's by doing things better, by doing things smarter, by being more flexible. Uh, and I think that I think that that's the greatest challenge is can we can we give up our uh, reliance on the way things used to be, the way we went to college, and uh, build things afresh? One of the reasons, Fram, I, I'm um, I, the last person to say that, boy, the pandemic was a great thing or is a great thing. It's not, it's horrible. And it, the human toll has been extraordinary. But I think for our institutions, for other institutions across the country, it's um, freed up our thinking because the old way of doing things just wasn't possible. And and what you, what you guys did was, um, and, and you know, we, we try to give credit uh, all the time. What you did on a dime in moving hundreds of thousands of course sections online overnight, uh, what you did with the faculty over the summer to help them understand the new tools and the new technology, and now to kind of build out a hybrid model in which you say we can do both. Um, you know, I think that those are the kinds of extraordinary re-envisionings that we need that we need to do to meet students where they are. You know, uh, I I always have to give credit because otherwise someday I'm going to be accused of plagiarizing something, and you know, the president tells me that that, that doesn't feel good. So, <laughs> uh, um, uh, I think it was the Chronicle. It was for sure the Chronicle of Higher Ed right at the beginning called. Um, uh, the pandemic, the black swan of higher education. Yeah. And that is exactly what it is. Um, the ability now, the freeing of ourselves, of the constructs that were holding us back, uh, that were making us aircraft carriers instead of nimble um, uh, uh, boats that can move quickly, um, I, I think is going to be for those universities that adopt, that embrace it uh, changing. And for those students, it's going to be life changing. But so you know, can I, can I flip the question back to you? You bet. So, so if you and I were if you and I were sitting with the president and the secretary, what what would you want to ask them to do to make that easier for you? Well, oh, I, I've been part of watching the Cal State system make systemic changes within the paradigm that we live in mm -hmm. um, that have been profound. The, the changing graduation rates, the change in the closing of the equity gaps, um, the, the, the work that we're doing to increase access for more students um, uh, and to better prepare them for the world that we live in um, and that world that we want to live in. But I think that the, uh, the existential threat of our society and therefore on the leading edge, higher education is diversity, equity, and inclusion. And more yeah. importantly, being affirmatively anti-racist and breaking apart, blowing up uh, the uh, institutional systemic uh, discrimination that we have, acknowledging it, recognizing it and then taking it apart and putting it back to it in a way together in a way that is equitable for all we have to do that in higher education we have to do that in our society if we do not do this we will not reach the goals that we have for ourselves that we think we've been achieving all along and so if if, if the secretary of education were asking me i would say help me to create systems for self-examination, self-review, and self-realignment so that we can achieve what we want to achieve, which is, which is true equity uh, for all our students. We have to build that community. We have to be the change that we want to be. 
Yeah. yeah. I, I'm 100%, 100% behind you. And I think it's interesting. I've been working this morning on a on a statement that we want to put out uh, today or, or tomorrow on uh, voting rights and the assault on voting rights. Um, and uh, really come to exactly the same conclusion, which is that uh, the good news is that historically, America's colleges and universities have, have really been at the forefront of voting rights, uh, whether that's the civil rights movement even before that, uh, after reconstruction, um, uh, certainly, the, the, in the 2020 election, the, the work on campuses, uh, including yours, to register students, and not just students, faculty, staff, community yeah. members, get people to the polls. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a great, it's a great legacy. But more than that, I think we've promised to the world the colleges and universities will be the places where we'll learn how to resolve these differences, how we'll learn to grow beyond our uh, systemic racism and our unconscious biases. Uh, and, and that way we can leave as either graduates or just members of the community with some tools that we can take out into our communities and help America heal. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm totally, totally with you. Well, you know, you said what set you on this path was your dad coming home with that manila folder and those, those kids that didn't have the access. And here we are, we're old, decades later. We're really old. Yeah, we're a couple I'm of old really they are coming, they're catching me. We're, 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 we're finally uh, facing, I think, more openly the same issues of how we go about doing this. So you've got a whole, we got a whole bunch of, uh, I hope, a whole bunch of students who are listening to you, Ted. I hope so. Um, and uh, you and I are, as I said, we're a couple of old dogs. Uh, but we've, we've been plugged into higher ed for a while now. We understand the milieu. Uh, speaking to the students, especially to our Titans, uh, of course, that's, that's most important to me. For, uh, uh, what advice would you give them regarding the, getting the most out of their college experience, getting the most uh, out, of, out of the university while they're here? Yeah, uh, um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a great, uh, great, great and good question. Uh, and um, just to be really clear uh, and honest about this, I have two college students. So this is um, uh, avuncular dad advice. So they're <laughs> not paying any attention to me. So hopefully some of you listening will. Um, it's, I, I think it's a two-part thing and they sound irreconcilable, uh, uh, but they're not. So one is um, have, have a bit of a plan, sort of know, know kind of where you wanna, where you wanna go. Uh, so that you're not just sort of wandering around. At the same time, let uh, let magic happen. Uh, you know, when when you get that thing, that inspiration, when you find yourself. For me, uh, this literally happened. I found myself at two o'clock in the morning, sophomore year, reading a book, thinking, "Wow, I've never done this before." Uh, it happened it happened to be a book on uh, the relationship between education and economic growth in 17th century England. You know, <laughs> know right? I can't believe you stayed awake. Oh, well, that's that's exactly right. So you know, so inspiration comes at different points. So be on a path. Don't just wander. Be on a path, but be ready uh, to find something to the left or to the right or far off into the distance that really inspires you, and then just go for it. Um, and I, and I, um, the, the other, the weird thing that sometimes people ask me is, gosh, you've had such an interesting career. How did you plan it out? I didn't. <laughs> you know, as a person of faith, I always say when you, know, you make plans and make God laugh, that's all that matters. Yeah. That's, yeah. 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 And I think for, for, for those of you who are, who are in school now, you know, here, the really good news is. Um, unlike us old dogs, uh, who, who really, I think we lived in a time when you were supposed to pick a career and that was it. Uh, whether it was, you know, Fram for you, you know, you, you were going to be a lawyer, right? And that was a, that was a thing. Yeah. And you were brave enough and smart enough to say, no, I'm, I'm done with that. I'm going over there. Um, uh, um, you don't have that same pressure. You know, you will have six or eight uh, um, careers, jobs, uh, in your in your lifetimes, and that's to be celebrated. Um, that's not dilettantism. It really is taking the skills that you have and bringing them to bear on on uh, different kinds of problems, different kinds of issues, different opportunities, and you should celebrate that. Yeah, 
And the other piece of advice I always like to give my students is um, jump in. Yeah, that's right. Uh, this time passes so quickly. And I always tell them the same story because it's my story that I remember. And that is, you know, being a freshman uh, at uh, UC Santa Barbara where everybody rides their bike to class, of course, and riding under this tunnel and seeing this big freshman year, this big uh, butcher paper announcing the uh, some uh, uh, fall concert that was going to happen. And I said, oh, I ought to go to that. And then, of course, I didn't. I was, you know, studying in the library or doing whatever I was doing. I just completely out of mind. Sophomore year, come back the same way. And there it is again. And oh my gosh, I remember that. I'm going to go to that. No, 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 didn't learn it. Same story, junior year, senior year. I see it and I go, gosh, darn it. I'm going. And I went and it was one of the most fun things I did in my whole college career. And I said, what a silly yeah. boy. <laughs> <laughs> For, 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 for not doing that. Don't miss those opportunities. Don't they, miss them. They, That's right. As you said, don't look straight ahead, look to the sides, things are happening. And if you plan too much, you'll miss out on life. Yeah, yeah. I, love, yeah. It. I yeah. love it. I think too, for students listening, it's important to recognize the story that, that President Mitchell talked about with the nursing student sending a letter um, that a lot of times that happens to Fram where a student will come up to him and say, and we just had a, a gal on the po podcast who recognized that we had places on campus for physical fitness, but not mental fitness. She brought it to Fram. We got to work, we made it happen. So this idea that people like President Mitchell and President Vergie are unapproachable or not listening um, is, is not true. And I think that's an important point for our students. Yeah, and I think I think it's I, I think that's exactly exactly right, Matt. And I think it's a it's a uh, a corollary to throw yourself in uh, is you know just don't um, uh, my um, my general counsels uh, over time uh, they're much long suffering people because I get them in trouble all the time. But one of them said to me a long time ago, the worst mistake you can make is negotiating against yourself. And I think too often we let ourselves get into a trap of, oh, they won't listen. Oh, it's not worth it. Oh, nothing will happen. That's not true unless you get the evidence back the other way. So don't talk yourself out of stuff like that. You know, um, come, come on, you know, we're, we're ready, we're ready. And, you know, the fact that, uh, that, 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 that Fram does that, not, not a surprise to me. Uh, and you'd be surprised at uh, the way people respond when you're just when you when you look at all of us as um, uh, humans and, and focus on that commonality. I care. You care. Here's a problem. Help me solve it. Yeah, it's I mean, there's so many different uh, uh, 50 things you can say, break out of your comfort zone, uh, stop and smell the roses, whatever they might be. But uh, Make sure that you experience it and that uh, uh, I can't tell you the number of people, Ted, and, and I, I'm sure you feel the same way, who are doing things now just like we are, who we never dreamed we would do because we looked to the left or the right rather than straight forward. That's right. Exactly. Exactly right. So I want to, um, you know, we touched on this, but it's, it's so crucial at this time and place in our country. Um, I don't want to just gloss over it. I want to make sure we have an opportunity to talk about it in, in specifically. And that is, um, as I said, it's sort of an existential crisis, I think, in our area of diversity, equity, and inclusion, issues of racism and bigotry and privilege and systemic injustice that have been baked into our institutions for a long time, baked into our lives for a long time. But in, in the past, have been subliminated, uh, sublimated. Uh, you know, we, we um, you know, if there is a uh, a criticism for the Obama years, that might be a criticism that, that some of those things went underground. Uh, yeah. And what we've seen is a blistering and boiling of them up over the past couple of years, especially with last summer and especially with the pandemic and with George Floyd and with the anti-Asian hate that we're seeing. Um, in a, way, in a way that hasn't happened in a generation. Um, and as, as most often the case, these issues are most often debated and confronted in places and spaces that are ripe for discussion as opposed to not uh, places where it's less comfortable. And that's our 
campuses, our universities. So Ted, talk to us for a minute about what you think about the issue of racism and privilege in our nation today, and specifically how we might, in higher education, we might uh, lead in bringing the change that we want. Yeah, so uh, it, it, is, it is the question, and uh, it's obviously been a, a motivating question for me throughout my, my life, really, and, and expressed in my career. Uh, and I think today we do find ourselves at a, I like to think of it as a really positive moment, if the world could just leave us alone. <laughs> One of the things that I think uh, is highly problematic, uh, you touched on the, you talked about the free speech and inclusion uh, work. A, a lot of the problem, um, well, a lot of the problem is that so much of the dialogue about race has been hyper-politicized and, and weaponized. It doesn't need to be so. And I would hope that um, campuses could be places where we could uh, insulate ourselves long enough to be able to have the productive conversations that we can have once we sort of anchor on our common humanity. Uh, I think it's a challenge, but I know that, that institutions are up to it. I know that, I know that you're up to it. I know that, uh, that the Fullerton community is up, up to it. Um, I'll give you, a, I'll give you an example of where I think we need to go. And this is going to sound like um, a cheap trick, but maybe it is. But I think we need to create a little bit more lightness in the conversation than we have. Um, uh, I grew up, not grew up, I, I, I worked for a long time in the, in the tech industry or adjacent to the tech industry. And one of the ways in which um, new technologies are tested is by throwing it out into the world and have people uh, essentially have a contest for finding bugs. And uh, our society is filled with bugs. And, and a, a, a huge number of them have to do with structural racism, with unconscious bias. Uh, and we see a lot of it in the language that we use. Um, uh, we had a we we had a conversation uh, earlier today in our communi communications team about the word seminal and uh, whether that was a, that was gendered and whether that was an appropriate word to use. Mm -hmm. You can you can overwork it, but it's still important. Um, I got called for uh, a, a, a conversation in which I said that someone was the low man on the totem pole. And for Native Americans, for indigenous peoples, that is a, a reference that's um, uh, derogatory. Anyway, so we could we we can play with these things a little more than um, we normally do, if it's a bug chasing exercise and not a castigation exercise. One more thing um, uh, around that: uh, Kimberly Crenshaw uh, at UCLA and Columbia, who's famous for her development of critical race theory and intersectionality. She, she and I have been doing, did a lot of work um, together uh, after President Trump uh, issued his executive order banning all of us from uh, on-campus trainings around diversity and critical race theory. Uh, and, and so, um, I, you know, she, she has a, what I think is the foundational point of view, she's not alone in this, um, that we need to think not about race blindness, but race consciousness, sure, if we sure. really are going to move forward. That race blindness is a form of uh, hegemony. It is creating whiteness as the norm and everything else as an aberration. Um, I, I, I get um, morning news briefs from colleges all across the country and uh, this <laughs> yesterday mornings was this horrible one from the University of Richmond where the trustees are debating renaming buildings. And uh, the trustees, um, long story short, uh, the head of the board of trustees in trying to have an open discussion with students talked about how they needed to reach out to um, uh, African-American students and Latino students uh, and make sure that the regular students um, understood the, um, yeah, really, huh? the regular students understood the importance of diversity on their campus. And it, 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 if ever this view was captured in a sentence, right. there it is. Right. Uh, so, you know, let's go, let's go on a bug hunt and find out the places where we uh, 
have a, a white norm where white is privileged, uh, what we can do to erase that, what we can do to really put people on um, a playing field in which, in which their own unique attributes, experiences, and backgrounds count. And I, I find that uh, the first step in that is the acknowledgement. And as soon as people acknowledge this issue and acknowledge that it is pervasive and it is out there and we, we, we make it a mission. That's right. To, to unearth it. Yeah. Uh, uh, then that commitment turns into something that solidifies and brings people together actually, as opposed to being divisive. Uh, people think this is going to be a divisive exercise. It's not. It's going to be a unifying exercise. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, we're we're running short of time, so I'm going to do a lightning round with you. Uh, what's your favorite book? Oh man, um, it's not it the is. one you were reading sophomore year. <laughs> no, no, no. But it, but it is a book. It is a book of history. It's the. Uh, um, uh, Edward P. Thompson's uh, History of the, of the English Working Class. Okay. Great. All right. Are you are you a dog or cat guy? Dog. Uh, what's your What's your uh, favorite band? Uh, the Doors. Oh, I love it, man. Okay. Bruins or Bruins or Cardinal. When they're playing each other. So the first game that uh, uh, the answer is Cardinal. The first the first football game uh, of the year when I joined the faculty when I was a dean at UCLA, uh, uh, Chuck Young, who Fram you know, uh, was the chancellor at UCLA. He sat me uh, right in front of him for the Stanford uh, UCLA game, so that he could audit my cheers. Yeah, you know I. Uh... Julie's dad was a, a medical professor at USC and had season tickets. And I, you know, I have two sons that are that are Trojans now, but I hated SC. So uh, he would give me the tickets in the faculty section and I would go and cheer for whoever was playing against SC. I used to have to bring an umbrella because people threw things at me. But, all right. Uh, Mac or PC? Mac. All right. And since you were an East Coaster, in and out or Steak Shack, or Shake Shack rather. Uh, in and out. All right, all right, all right. I love it. How'd I do? You did great. You did great. Now the only question that and, and no one else will get this, but what's with the socks, man? What do you have? What do you have on? Well, you know, so I I, I was gonna wear your socks, but I think <laughs> that in the Zoom world, socks were never gonna show. So I, <laughs> so instead, I, I I tried I tried to put the colors together up top. You got it. You got but, it. Uh, but my but my Titan my my Titan socks are uh, right right where I need them. Well, Ted, this is an honor and a pleasure, and just fun to see you. And Great. you know, last year we were talking about catching a baseball game, and nothing happened. Fans are coming back, so uh, don't be surprised when you get that text or call. Hey, I'm let's ready. go to a game. I am ready. And don't All be right. surprised when your Twitter following goes up to seven after this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking, I'm looking for the Virgie bump. That's yes, awesome. that's about right. All right. All well, right. Take care. Great to Thanks. see you. Thanks, you guys. Great to see you. Thank you. Thanks, Graham. Thanks, Matt. Thank you for listening to Fram and Friends, a collaboration between Titan Radio and Cal State Fullerton. For more episodes like the one you just heard, visit titanradio.org.